Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. And thank you, virtual audience, for joining us. This is really an exciting, well, every evening is exciting when we do this, but I particularly enjoy introducing you to debut authors. And in fact, over here is Jess Maxwell, and her new book is called The Golden Spoon, which you might think starting out is going to be a cozy because it's set during bake week and a sort of mansion remote mansion somewhere in what is it the wilds of new england it's yeah it's in yeah the wilds of vermont vermont that's it and so you think that you know there might be cats and there might be you know all sorts of fun stuff but it kind of morphs into a thriller so um it's a very unexpected book so we'll talk about that and over here is jerry riddle who my family get to meet in person and he is here with quantum radio which made me go back and look up when my university, Stanford, put in its linear accelerator, which happened when I was an undergraduate. Wow. And I didn't understand what it did then. That's <laughs> totally After excited. reading the book, you still don't know. Well, <laughs> no, but I'll let you explain it. Well, I'll be happy to. Half the book is about that. So it's it more It's about not, not the one at Stanford, which is now, as I understand it, the longest one. Yeah, right. right. And it, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a newer model than the one that was there in 1958, just right. But you're at the CERN reactor, which is somewhere under Switzerland and France, and kind of a loop. It's a ring, yeah. 24 miles or some sort of kilometers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. See, I, I did actually look it up. <laughs> I did look it up. Okay, but quantum physics are beyond me. So, um, And I think it's fascinating that Jerry can actually make thrillers out of science and explain it to you in a way so that you can follow along with what's happening. Um, even if you were, for example, a French major. <laughs> right. So where should we start? Jess, let's start with you. All right. So The Golden Spoon, which is a wonderful title, um, does it represent anything? Yeah, I think, I mean, I was trying to come, as I was writing it, I was, of course, trying to come up with, like, the best possible title to describe it, but also to, like, be evocative of something else. And, um I like to think about like the characters, you know, privilege and um, kind of social social class plays into the book a little bit, and especially with the two main kind of matriarchs in the book, and so the golden spoon was kind of a play on the silver spoon, and then it was also the golden spoon is the prize that you win if you win the bake week competition, which is very much like a you know, kind of a cozy gentle baking show that kind of goes. It goes off the rails, but... Oh, is, is anybody here watch British, the British Bake Week, you know? Because, I mean, if you've seen any of the baking things, um, I, you know, I've never quite understood how good the food was. I mean, it's all about the construction and the concept and so forth. But I've often wondered, you know, whether the judges are dazzled by that or whether, in theory, it's supposed to taste good, too. Yeah, I mean, I think the early seasons, I'm a huge British baking show, fan and the early seasons were definitely very focused on like craft and like you wanted you know all the food to taste really really good and i think as the show has progressed it's more and more about like construct a giant bust of a famous you know celebrity or something out of cake and it's very different than it used to be it used to be very kind of basic um but my show in the book is definitely about you know just basic the basics being very good at it Right, which might actually taste. Sometimes I think it's the juxtaposition of ingredients and some of the fancier ones that I offer. My husband is addicted to um, 
fancy restaurants. He faxes ahead so that we can eat at Twabra or something we go to France. And sometimes the food is so precious, you know, and the, the flavors are so different um, that I don't, you know, I, I think that we're there. It's for the show. What are your views on that? You've read this book, so what would you like to say? I'm currently reading this book, and I think what's so fascinating, what I loved about the book was the different characters and the you know the juxtaposition of where one's coming from and what they want out of the competition. It's sort of like, you know, what what is, you know, the objective is to bake all these things and to be the best, but what they want out of it is very different. I thought uh, it was very interesting. And then I love the way the book was written. I mean, it was very, for me, anyway, engaging. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Over the course, since I first came to Scottsdale in 1950, when I was only 10 years old, and there were um, two paved roads, and we weren't even incorporated. You went into Terminal 1, and you took a buckboard to the Camelback Inn. That's how long ago that was. There was nowhere to eat. And even in the 90s, my uncle once said to me, you know, there are many restaurants, none of them memorable. And yet somehow or other, we have evolved into a real foodie community. Phoenix, Scottsdale, and when when that happens, celebrity chefs begin to play more and more of a role and, you know, they seem driven to like constantly open new restaurants, find new venues, do exciting stuff. I guess it's the creativity part of it mm -hmm. that's exciting, although it's also a business. And I wonder how much the Bake Week idea is to give some of these aspiring chefs, um, because there's cash involved, right? I think for some of them, because there's, so there's six contestants in Bake Week, and they all have different aspirations, you know, they all want different things for themselves, they're all there for different reasons. Um, and some of them, of course, are very competitive, and they want it to launch their careers, they want right. to, you know, deal, book deals, and, um, and then you have the person who's hosting Bake Week, who his name is Betsy Martin, she's kind of like, she's called America's grandmother, and she's a bit of a, like, Julia Child style person, but she, you know, off camera is very ambitious and very kind of out for herself, but also protecting, you know, what she has and what she's built. And then you have this brash guy who is on this very competitive cooking show called, it was, uh, you know, where like you yell at people when they don't make things right, throw things, and he is suddenly you know, put next to her and she has to deal with him being like a co-host with her. And it's like devastating. And also like she's being infringed upon, she's aging, she's worried about like her legacy and things go south. <laughs> so, so in part, it's like contemporary journalism. It's about the clicks, right? It's about people watching the show. I mean, yeah. the Fox News scenario as it's unfolding, it's okay, you know, to tell lies in order not to lose your audience. Um, <laughs> and so, I'm putting that gently. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I have to say, Rupert Murdoch stepped up in a way I never expected, but we'll move on from that. But anyway, she has, it's a TV show, and so if the ratings are dipping, they have brought in this guy, mm -hmm. right? That's not what happens this yeah. year. Yeah. They brought in this guy to kind of jack it up. Mm -hmm. but, um, it couldn't be more different. They're really contrasting person. But that's good because conflict is the thing that drives the producers. Yeah. 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 So um, the other thing I think is really interesting, aside from this community in this contest, is this is a Vegas basic Agatha Christie setup. 
you're in a big country house somewhere in the wilds of Vermont, as we've already said. So whatever's going to happen, it's only really going to be those people in that house that are going to be involved, right? So this is not going to be where, you know, some criminal drives up or steps off the train or whatever it is. So it's a classic Agatha Christie setup. Are you, have you studied Christie? Do you like that kind of a thing? I've always liked that kind of thing. I haven't studied Christie. I mean, I've read Christie books kind of a while, a long time ago, actually, but they must have made an impression on me. Um, but I loved, you know, having, it's told from quite a few points of view, and I loved having them all there because, you know, you have seven, eight points of view total, um, and, but they can each move the story forward in different ways because each person has to, as bakers have different strengths, but then also as human beings notice different things that contribute to, you know, moving the plot forward and finding different things out or, you know, some people are not there to be cooks necessarily. <laughs> so, I don't know. I really liked using all the different points of view and I thought uh, having it, you know, set at that kind of place allowed me to have, Senator Baking competition allowed me to have all these different kinds of people and that was like the special, the most special part to me was that I could have, there's not that many locked rooms where it's different kinds of people like it's usually it's a locked room you're at a say you're at a bachelorette party it's going to be all women of a certain age right and this was so great because you look at these cooking shows and they really are people from very diverse backgrounds different ages and i just thought that was really fun and it also allowed me to have like a lot of different very distinct voices in the book which i really just loved writing honestly yeah, and the, the differences in the food, the ethnicity of the food, I think is fascinating too. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, ironically, that's a great way to kill people, right? <laughs> <laughs> what you eat. Lots of sharp objects. <laughs> yeah. Eating a lot. Uh, that too. That's true. That's true. Kitchens are actually full of weapons, aren't they? <laughs> oh, truly. Potential forces. <laughs> right. So, as I said, you think you're in this nice cozy and it's bake week and all the rest of it, and then it becomes more brutal as you go along. <laughs> so a surprise ending, which we aren't going to talk about, unfortunately. But anyway, I thought, I thought it was to be terrific. So let's talk to Jerry, and then we'll come back and sort of talk about origin stories and stuff. So lost in time. Why don't we, because these people may not have caught our Zoom discussion. So why don't we talk? Because there is a relation in that you're using science to power your village. Yeah, I think, well, so I think Lost in Time and Quantum Radio are, are similar in a sense that they're both about strangers trying to figure out some core mystery. They're sort of brought together and they're thrown into these situations that are driven by family issues and issues in the past, but also science and trying to figure out some sort of elaborate mystery. And it's a little like, you know, the Golden Spoon in a sense of these are people from different walks of life brought into some really hectic situation and there's time compression and so there's like this looming deadline. I always like, in my books, I like a ticking clock and, and sort of some pressure on the characters. And um, I, I did like that about the Golden Spoon as well. But the Lost in Time, the, the sort of ticking clock is that we have a father who, he and his daughter accused murder. And the only way to solve his, the, to save his daughter is to admit to the murder. But in the near future, murderers aren't sent to prison. They're sent to the past, 
200 million years into the past, the time of the dinosaurs. And so his daughter's challenge becomes, how do I get my father back? And he's one of the people who invented this machine. And so, I, you know, the story is, is fantastical. You know, it's, it's grounded in science enough that I think a lot of readers can go along with it. Um, but, you know, you've got the dad who's basically living Jurassic Park. You've got the daughter who's trying to figure out who she is and who all these people around her. It's very much a murder mystery of who playing my dad. So that's lost in time. And then Quantum Radio is, is along those lines, but it's very different in that, you know, it's about four strangers that figure out that they're connected to this huge mystery. And so the, the core of it is uh, this guy named uh, Tyson Klein, who's a physicist at CERN, and he figures out that the LHC is receiving this signal. He doesn't know where it's from, but it looks like organized data. Is it from the past or the future? or the universe, or somewhere else on the planet. And so what he figures out is that his research is the key to figuring out this really big mystery, and things go sort of sideways pretty quickly for Ty, and he's on the run. And so he meets these other people that sort of seem to have another piece of the puzzle. There's no baking, and it's you know, <laughs> as enjoyable a culinary space, but there is sort of some intellectual sense. So the data really has to come in, though, in, as a stream, doesn't it? Because there's just random bits all over the place, and everybody would pay any attention. Exactly. And, you know, when you see these news articles about the LHC, it's like, well, they found the Higgs boson, and they, they, all this stuff. But, you know, really what they're doing is they're crashing particles together, and they're looking at the data that comes out, and, you know, what they're getting is these huge data sets. And they're analyzing, well, you know, based on the size of these particles or what we're seeing, yeah, this is what this is. And so the, the premise of quantum radio is that, is that Ty has written this algorithm that's like, well, I can see what no one else is seeing. And there's something here that's organized and it's this sort of data stream. And he's sort of tuning into this, if you will, quantum radio that's broadcasting something across space and time. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't know who's doing it. And he doesn't know what the message is in particular. But And that becomes his challenge is to sort of sort it out. So in my brief and admittedly completely shallow research on Google this afternoon, looking back into accelerators, um, what I learned was that um, the particle, you, you have to, they can only do this once, right? The particles as they stream through the accelerator, and then so the only way you can do more is to expand, expand the accelerator. Well, exactly right, yeah. So, you know, the way the accelerators are... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they, so they take these particles and they use these big magnets and they accelerate them almost to the speed of light and then they will direct them to collide, right? right? And so then they measure what comes out of those collisions because you're basically taking two particles and when you crash them together, you're seeing, you know, the very basic and the smallest possible pieces of matter in the universe. You, you're almost actually going back in time to the beginning of the Big Bang. And the only way, and so after a time, you crush so many particles together, you analyze so many of these collisions, like there's no more collisions that we're going to see that are going to be materially different. Right. The only thing we can do is to upgrade our sensors, we can upgrade our magnets, we can try to make them faster, we can try to see more of the data. And so quantum radio picks up after a real-life upgrade to the LHC in which they're able to detect more things, and that's when 
Ty makes his discovery. Do you have a question, ma'am? I'm a music major. What is an LAC? <laughs> oh, oh, Large Hadron Collider. Yeah. What? Okay. The Large Hadron Collider. Yeah. That's so the, the L-H Collider. Large Hadron, H-A-D-R-O-N. Large Hadron Collider is just the name of it. Wow. Um, but that is... You don't need to know that to know what Ty <laughs> So I said the original one was at Stanford and under you know under the, the university helped the linear accelerator, but now they've they've created this gigantic one uh, under Switzerland and France. Um, they figured out with a loop they could get them to go faster, and then they right. you know sort of make them collide. So really, the, the question is, you know, how how small can you go? I mean, you know, if you keep smattering, smashing matter, and it gets smaller and smaller, eventually you wind up with some. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. that, so that's the problem. There is diminishing returns on what they're detecting. But it's great for people like me because we keep making stuff up. <laughs> when they quit finding stuff, we, that's when we <laughs> We'll just fill in all the... <laughs> What's the ultimate goal of all these, you know, all this data? What is it they're trying to find? I mean, in real life, not yeah, in your book. It's a great <laughs> question. And I, I mean, I think, well, the ultimate goal think is the reconciliation between you know quantum mechanics and then like the standard model and it's sort of like the great theory of everything which is what everyone's the physicist anyway have been looking for and that is a bit of the premise of the book and that um the idea is that ty has sort of found this thing that solves it all and explains so i mean our universe the, the problem that we have in physics in general is that the way things work at a very very small scale doesn't really work at a large scale. And so we don't know why that is. And so on the scale of atoms and molecules, things act very ordered and it makes sense and we can like predict, okay, you know, this is going to happen, this will happen next. And so on the quantum scale, it's like, oh, you know, things are really different and we don't know why entanglement happens, but we've observed it, we know it happens. And so I think the LHC and, and those experiments the hope is that we find like the Higgs boson and some of these other particles, you know, subatomic particles, that explain why why the universe is the way it is. And until the then, we bang, have quantum radiation. Right. So what's that? Basically explaining the Big Bang. Exactly. And also possibly predicting where it's all going. Now you will be relieved to know, while this is background, this is actually a thriller, and when Todd <laughs> makes this discovery, people attack him. They want to steal it. His apartment is blown up. He has to flee for his life, and um, it goes on. So, I mean, it really is a thriller. But that those are the stakes, as opposed to, say, faking. However, <laughs> <laughs> to be really fair, since I live with a person who lives to cook, baking is science, too. I mean, anyone who's trying to, you know, do any serious baking, really, it's chemistry. And, you know, and, and there's been some amazing breakthroughs in um in food preparation as a result of, of understanding chemistry and i'm having a complete mental blank which i often do these days but you know what's the the deal when you put the food in a bath and you know you sous vide sous vide cooking thank you very much for only 650 dollars you could buy the original cookbooks <laughs> i know that because we own a set right yeah. but anyway you know it's molecular cooking right yeah there's so in a way it's you know it's not that dissimilar here. <laughs> I think it is. Yeah. I mean, I mean the characters in this book are, I mean, it is a bit of a mystery. And there's, you know, there's 
there's some chemistry and there's some science and there's some art to making a cake and and I think that is sort of a proxy for what these folks are trying to do where they're trying to get I think for for Ty and his characters you know it's, it's a little more science and history but I do think you know it's very similar in a sense it is similar and there is a ticking clock I don't see it because, now <laughs> And if you think about it, there's a ticking clock in both books because, in fact, um, Bake Week, it's a week, right? So, in theory, it will come to a conclusion. But um, I, I thought it was completely fascinating. Do, are you yourself a cook? I mean, are you a baker or did Not you just kind right. of observe? I love baking and I think, you know, maybe this even came a little bit out of like pandemic, you know, stress baking and things. I've always loved baking when I'm stressed and when I, or just when I'm really focused, like when I was writing this, I would stop. I write, I wrote, I always write a thousand words a day. So I'd write my thousand words or a little more and then I would go make dinner, go bake something. And I love doing that. And then it was like kind of research, but now I'm writing a different book and it's not about baking. And I still, you know, go cook things all the time and do that. So, but I love baking. I love baking all sorts of things, but I'm not like a fancy baker. Like I'm not, I'm actually like really bad at making like a layer, layer cake, you know, like I'm, I can make like a really good cake, but then I try to stack it and it's just a, absolute disaster i don't know why i know it's not even that hard but for some reason yeah so true i remember when i was a child my mother was absolutely fabulous cake yeah she could make cake. she could make a pie crust to save her life oh, you yeah. could drop it on the floor yeah. and splinter the floor yeah. you know, there are certain terrible. things that elude me i think so we all you know but it comes back you were talking about predictability because in point of fact if you're a baker if your oven temperature isn't right you know i mean Baking is founded on figuring out what happens chemically under That's given conditions, right? It has to have a particular, yeah. We have an author called Joanne Plew who has written like a zillion cozy um, mysteries involving food. And she always has recipes in the bag. And here's a scary example. She, she is now so specific. She will actually just say things like open a, a number 10 ounce can of whatever it is and put it into the you know whatever and the reason she does that is that when her recipes were simpler she said you know she was doing something in a pressure cooker and one of the instructions was add a can of peas so wherever the baker you know this yeah. novice cook was threw the can of peas into the pressure cooker oh, no. and it blew up and killed <laughs> If you understand the physics of pressure cooking, uh, you would understand, you know, that no, they're terrifying. There's, they're there's really. an unpredictable, as a matter of fact, a little known point of publishing is that the riskiest thing that a publisher can publish is a cookbook. It truly is, you know, because, yeah, because people can get sick, people can get hurt. Kitchens are a dangerous place. And so they generally have very elaborate test kitchens and they, you know, repeatability is a, is a key factor, you know, in, in recipes, right? And especially in baking, you want to, you want repetitive trials so that you're going to come out with a product that 
And then you have to allow for altitude. And yeah, I would. I can't match. I mean, I or I can match. I always, you know, you watch these shows, and I always enjoy imagining myself in one of them because I, I, I could never, ever, ever, ever manage. I would, I would have a total panic attack like the instant I stepped on to one of those, you know, into one of those tents or anything. I can't imagine being able to do it, but I'm so impressed by people who are able to be in front of people faking. And I think it takes a certain kind of person to be able to do that. And I thought that's kind of a fun thing too, to think about with writing these characters. So you clearly have a dark side buried underneath. <laughs> <laughs> You're smiling. I know, not even in a deep I don't <laughs> the book goes kind of deep. No, yeah. no, no. I mean, my dark side is not too far down. Oh, <laughs> yeah. it's a deep dark side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here. Okay, right. But, so let's talk about origin stories because you have an interesting history. On your road to becoming an author, you did other stuff. I did. Yeah. Well, I started an internet company in college, and I did that for ten years, and you know, it was a good career for me. I, I really like creating things, and, and we started a number of companies, and when we sold the last one, I, I sort of took some time to figure out what I really wanted to do with my life, and what I thought I was good at, and what I thought my limitations were. And I love reading, and I love science fiction, and so I thought, I'm going to take a little time um, to write a novel, and I'm going to see what happens, and see where it goes. Like, a little time, like somebody might think, oh, it's three months, six months. Two and a half years for me is the amount of little time that it took me to write that novel. My wife is here tonight. And she probably thought that I was going crazy, and I never let her see my novel that whole time. And and I um. That's this, sweet. Why that was, did Why didn't you let her see it? Well, I was a private creator. Well, so the first drafts were not good. <laughs> I, I, the first stuff that I wrote. Oh yeah, I was like, you know, am I ever going to be able to do this? This stuff, I don't think it's very good. But I think. And and this goes back to baking a little bit. Like the only way you get better is to, you know, keep practicing. And you know, not that you're working from a formula, but you, you know the size, and you know you have to put the layers in your story, and they have to like hold each other up. But, um, I mean, I just kept working at it because that's um, what I knew. And, and so, well, anyway, this was 2011 is when I started writing. When I finished the book, I. I felt like I'd done some pretty good work on it, and I was really mm -hmm. proud of it. And I I didn't know anything about publishing, uh, but I knew a lot about selling things on the internet. And so I, I self-published my first book, and I thought, you know, if this takes off, I'm going to keep doing this and try to figure it out. If it doesn't, I'm just going to do something else, and I'll just waste two and a half years doing, you know, some other. I'll probably make a cake. I <laughs> <laughs> can't do. And, um, but yeah, the book, you know, it, it took off been writing since and I've written since my twelfth novel and I'm happy to have it in this bookstore. Yeah, yeah. And I actually wrote Quantum Radio two years ago, actually before Lost in Time. That's what you said. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's that's exactly how I got here. It's <laughs> <laughs> surprising how many first time novelists hide their work don't want to show it to anybody until they see if it's going to work were you that kind of a first-time novelist yeah i didn't show it my husband is actually um quite an accomplished editor he works at he worked at knopf for a long time and he's at simon and schuster now 
And so I was extra scared of showing it to him. <laughs> so I wouldn't let him read it at all. I would get frustrated. He'd be like, you should, you know, blabbering on to him about characters he's never read about. And he's like, I can't, I'll just read it. I can just read it. And I would be like, no, no, you can't read it. And then when I was finished, I read, you know, I gave it to him. He was my first reader. And I was so nervous because I'd never written a novel. Just like I was going to throw up. And he read like the first section of it. Um, and he's like, oh, I you, like, got really excited. And I was, he's like, you have something here. It's really great. And then after that, it was great. And I think I would, but now I'm writing my second book and I still don't want to show it. <laughs> yeah. It's like kind of like you, you know, like the spell will be broken. I don't like having anyone look at it because it's so confusing. And then you start getting their ideas in your head and it's just too much to, kind of put in you already have all the bad reviews in your head now. <laughs> it's like you don't want to have anything else that's could be you kind of like seed itself in there and take away from your process I think. So, I did, yeah. Oh sorry. No, no, no. Well I was just gonna say I do think that if you can make your way to that creative place where you can just do this work, at least your first draft. Okay. I, I found for me that's the way to get it done. And to to write the story that I want, and then I I start working on it and trying to figure out what's going to work. So, would a writer's group be something you would do or you wouldn't do? I I've never done say a critique group, but I will say that I I have benefited immensely from you know writing the book. I'll give it a little time. I go away from it for a few weeks, and then I'll come back. I'll read through it, and I'll see stuff that it's like, oh, you know, here's a missed opportunity. Or here's something that, like on reading, it doesn't really seem right or doesn't seem like that character would do it. Because for me, as I go along, the characters really evolve. I get to know them better. So I go back to the beginning and say, oh, you know, that, that needs a little work. But I do think beta readers, for me at least, like from a sensitivity standpoint and just like seeing things that I wouldn't have thought about that. And that's a, a nice change. But I, I do think, I think that helps you a lot because you, when you talk about beta readers, these are folks that really love your work and they're super fans and they know, you know, the sort of stories at least I'm trying to tell and they can, they can help you. So in your case, would, you know, sort of a science translator be, I mean, if you are just so densely scientific that the average person, for example, you or me, couldn't figure it out, um, it'd be helpful to have somebody yes. give you some guidance. There. I, do, I do. Well, I think the science translator is a good idea, but also it's like, you know, my wife is my ultimate first reader and she will sometimes read the book and say, you know, I really like this story. I like these characters. Man, you know, you got three pages on quantum physics here. Like, it's just like <laughs> a little too much. I mean, you know, like it needs to, you know, it's like this long, it needs to be this long. And you, things that, I personally enjoy, I have to, this is one of the big struggles with techno thrillers, like, you know, I think, I think this is interesting information, but are we bogging the plot down too much, and is it, you know, can we just put this on the website instead, or, you know, <laughs> things like that. Right, the author's note is a valuable tool. The fact that right. So if you have an in-house editor, you know, a writing group, probably, <laughs> that's pretty scary, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, a writer's group might not be of interest to you. I... I would, you know, I love the idea of it, um, and I have now met just in this, you know, this is my first year of being a novelist, really, and, and getting to interact with other people who have written similar, you know, books in similar genres, but um, 
I've, I've gone to writing groups when I was younger, when I really wanted to write a novel, and I've always found them to be like incredibly discouraging environments, which is really too bad. But I think a lot of people who want to write books, you know, can be kind of critical of each other. So I would be very wary of putting myself in that position. Yeah, I asked you because some people thrive in them and some oh, people yeah, do not. Oh, yeah, sure. And I think it's like if you find a safe place to do right. it, if you find the right people, you know, who are, and people who understand what you're, what you're looking to do, you know, and, and kind of go with what, you know, this is a thing I want to make and like, how can we make this the best thing instead of like trying to change it too much, I think. So what are you working on now? You said you're embarked upon your second novel. Yes, I am pretty And there's probably not a sequel available. No, no I got it. Book with the sequel. Not, I mean, I think it could happen, but. It's not like, like the Golden Fork. Or yeah. The <laughs> <laughs> it's on the whole table, actually. I know. I mean, I'd be very, set. Should be a very beautiful other book with my cover. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm probably like three quarters of the way through another locked room mystery that takes place in, um, I, I live part time in Rhode Island in a small island in Rhode Island and it's right across, across from Newport, which what? has, no, I'm in um, Jamestown. Oh, okay. Um, which has like all of these old Gilded Age mansions, so it's set in one of those. Um, when you say locked room, define that for me because locked room and, and a country house mystery are actually two very different things. I mean, well, people can't leave. No, locked rooms are impossible crime mysteries. The whole point of a locked room mystery is there's a dead person in a place that nobody could get into or get out of it. So the whole thrust of a locker room mystery is, is how did it how did it happen? But your writing is an Agatha Christie book, which is a closed circle mystery. Well she's the locked room inside the mansion. Well <laughs> I mean it is a constant confusion uh, of terms and I only I, I knew what the answer was gonna be here, but I, I brought it up just because it, you you will create an expectation in a lot of people. If you say lack room, that, that isn't actually the case. Only if they know the definition. Though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to barely everybody. Surely everybody. I like things that I like when people that. are trapped in a right, yeah. and that's, that's that's a, a terrific mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. Lack room is actually a very small sidebar kind of a thing. Although Jerry's right, if you were in the mansion and yeah. there was Uncle Edgar in the study mm -hmm. with the chimney sealed and the doors locked mm -hmm. and the windows barred and he was dead and there was no one mm -hmm. in the room and there was, you know, the key on the outside, that would be a locked so room. So who wrote one of who, who it was? It's the man named John Dixon Carr who made a whole career. Is he the writing. only person who's ever written a locked room? There are very few because if the enormous Reginald Hill wrote one, trying to think of Peter Loveseed, it's enormously hard to write one because mm -hmm. you have to figure out it's the mechanics of the crime. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a like a joke. No, it's not really a joke. It's just hard work to figure it out. And, um, you know, <laughs> I, I, it doesn't, it, it, <laughs> there's just not a lot of them, let me put it that way. But there are loads of what you're talking about, which is wonderful, creepy houses where great things happen. Yay. <laughs> Great. So you can't really do that in science-based, can you? 
Yeah. Maybe uh, you could lock someone inside the accelerator. Well, we can try. Yes. And then they get very small. <laughs> accelerate them around. But I'm working on, um, I've written a little bit on a follow-up to Quantum Radio. And I'm also working on a couple of other stories. It's just like, um, my creative process is like three hamsters in there that just were, you know, so I don't know what's going on. So you're enamored, you're enamored with multiverses, and clearly that also is the way you'd like to write. I do. I mean, I, I obviously I love time travel. The idea of the multiverse, I think, you know, we're all in this world that we're trying to understand, you know, as you alluded to earlier, there's things that it's just like, that happen, you're just like, man, that's... That's totally crazy. Like, how did that just happen? And, and I think we all wonder, like, what what would the world be like if one or two events were changed? You know, if you know this and that. And I've always been fascinated by this idea that the world can just turn on very small events or people's actions, and then um, it's sort of like the what if world. Like, what if this or that happened? What if That's this had not happened? Which actually plays into the book, but we won't go there but there is yeah, no spoilers, a major either. event what exactly. if it had not happened the way it did how would, how would things be different that's right. i think it's fascinating how about questions anybody here have a question of either author any scientific questions <laughs> <laughs> any baking questions or locked room mystery questions? no i don't i don't <laughs> i'm sorry i really didn't intend to embarrass you <laughs> <laughs> Please, uh, did you have a question? Oh, yeah, no, I was going to ask both of you. I I've read a lot of your books. I haven't read yours yet. But, like, how do you go about, like, the process of creating your characters? You know, going through creating those layers and just understanding them more. It's be interesting to hear how you do that. Well, please, Jessica. Yeah. She has some wonderful characters here. I'm not sure, really. I mean, I love imagining different people in situations and how they would react. I think I'm sure it comes from different people I've met. I, I traveled a lot when I was younger, and I spent a lot of time with very diverse groups of people, and I'm sure I've taken elements of all of these people that I've met in my life and put them into people, but I have, like, extreme affection for all of my characters, like, even the bad ones, um, just, like, really enjoy coming up with them, and honestly, like, the further away from me they are, the easier they are to write for me for some reason. Are you like that, Sarah? A little bit, yeah. And I'm also, <laughs> finding somebody, I was like, oh, that's a little on the nose. Like, that's really close to someone I know. Could <laughs> <laughs> get me in some trouble. Yeah. I, but it's also people you're fascinated by. Yeah. People that you might like to be. Yeah, I think that's that's it. And there are, you know, there's characteristics in people that I really, that I don't possess, that I admire, or that I think are just interesting and kind of fun to think about. And... Yeah, but I think I had the hardest time with Stella, who's like mo kind of the most similar to me, like had a background in journalism, it's like, you know, was in her 30s and like closest to me of all of them, you know, in personality. And she was just a blank to me in some ways. Like I almost felt like it was like nothing there, you know, like I had to like fill it. I had to like really work for that one. Which is really interesting. So when you set up the, the bake week and you had to have X number of people, you know, as contestants, did you set that up first and then populated it? Or did you have a group of characters and then decide on bake week? Which way did it go? It was that was the hardest thing for me with this book was coming up with the rules for the TV show. 
because I wanted, you couldn't have just some of the perspectives because then you would know who was irrelevant right at the beginning. You had to have all of them, but then you couldn't have 20 people, you know, points of view in the book. So yeah, I could kind of, I, I kind of did both. It was kind of a, at the same time. Well, see, for me, a lot of the characters in my books, it's, I guess I get um, a bit of a shortcut because some of the characters have to be a certain thing, right? So I'm, I'm writing this book about quantum. <laughs> She's shameless. <laughs> now, this is my number one fan. She's <laughs> Yeah. We always make her stay in the front row. Oh, is that right? Yeah, because that way she gets to come and dance at everybody. Don't you, sweetheart? Yes, yeah, you do. Well, I've been on the road for three weeks, so she's probably not smelling at her dog in the back hall. I don't know. Um, but I, you know, some of my characters, they have to be a certain role. So I have to have a quantum physicist. So I have to think about, all right, what kind of, what kind of person would be working at CERN, living in Geneva, on a budget, working long hours, you know, day and night, trying to figure something out. And that does help. I mean, I do think that that boundaries can be great for creativity because you're like, you know, this is what, these are the confines of this character. And then within that, you've got to make this person kind of interesting. And so you do sort of think about who that might be. And, and I do, like Jess's novel, I like novels that, have strangers who are really different. So we've got a quantum physicist, we've got a Navy SEAL, we've got uh, a down and out musician who's homeless and, uh, you know, a physician who's working at Oxford who's a professor or, or a lecturer. But uh, I do like the contrast of characters and, and where they're coming from. And I like to see them sort of have conflict in the way they're seeing what they're doing and uh, how their life experience resolves the plot and how it sort of uh, creates more conflict. So that's what I'm always looking for is characters that, that are different and add some sort of intrigue to the book. Yeah. And it has to have conflict. I mean, you know, if there isn't any, there's, there's no plot really, or there certainly doesn't work for this particular genre. Literary fiction, sometimes you can just have them slanting about and they don't, they don't actually have to collide with each other, but that doesn't work for any of you ladies over there have a question? I wasn't really. This is a uh, ten women who who meet here annually. Um, we're always pleased to see them in March. So, thanks for coming again. Anything you might like to add in case we weren't looking at you? Oh, all right. I'm Anybody? a woman too. I know you are. You're in the wrong place. <laughs> I know. I have a question about the plot. How much of the plot do you know before you start the book? I mean, do you have an outline, or does it evolve as you write? You know, where does it come from? Do you have a great idea before you start and do you know where you're going with it? I think that the first one I knew where it was ending and then I had to kind of like meander uh -huh. my way there. Um, and the current one, I thought I knew where it was going, but then I changed my mind a couple of times. Mm -hmm. So it has taken like these different paths and it's taken me longer to write it. I wrote the first one really quickly and this one is definitely taking a little bit longer. But yeah, I think I, I kind of know. Mm -hmm. It's like a vague directions. Yeah. Well, I think um, I think everyone <laughs> sort of finds this balance between plotting and sort of pantsing or making it up as you go. But I think, you know, early in my career, I plotted a lot. Like, I really wanted to know that I had a strong plot and I had, 
these big twists, reveals. I, I really wanted to know that the ending had this payoff, this big sort of boom that that I thought was worth the journey. I, but the one thing that I learned about that is, as I wrote the book, I got to know the characters more, and some of the plot didn't work. I was like, you know, that character wouldn't do that. This doesn't work anymore. And it was really kind of agonizing to go back in this iterative process of like, now I'm, now I'm writing my outline. Okay, tomorrow I'm writing my book again. Oh wait, now I'm writing my outline again. And then, um, I, I think as I've written, you know, now my 12th novel, my outlines are a little broad, but I still want to know that there are these big moments in the book that I look forward to writing and this big ending that I, that I think uh, makes the book worth reading. But I think every novelist sort of has to find that balance between, you know, some like Stephen King would say, you know, I just pick it all up as I go. Wow. And that, that I, but I also think it's genre dependent in the sense of I do a ton of research. I know Jessica had to do a lot of research for her book. And it's like, you do this research and you know that this stuff has to be in here, so there has to be some sort of structure in which to deploy it. But you did have to come up with, did you come up with Bake Week as your basic idea first? Um, no, I no. just thought I want to get to be murdered out of baking. <laughs> you did. You did have the idea that it would be. A, yeah, a but competition. I did. I oh yeah, I did have that was the that was the original idea. Yeah, was that it would be at a competition, which was great because it gave it some structure, um, which I think kind of propelled the plot forward, and that was really like. Right, but I mean, there are a lot of competitions. There are beauty pageant competitions yeah. and hat making. I mean, you know. Yeah. There's always a potential for a terrific conflict mm -hmm. whenever you have a competition in a yeah. large collection yeah. of different characters. For sure. Yeah, I think you were brilliant to come up with baking. Yeah. yeah, I like the baking because there's, I mean, the inherent competition, of course, is always good, but then it's got like, like I said earlier, like I just love all the different kinds of people that enter these things. And, you know, there are different kinds of bakers too. There are very neurotic bakers, there are people who are very scientific. There yeah. are people who are naturals at it, people who have to work harder, and it was nice combining all of those different personality types. Anybody else? <laughs> yes, sir. I had a question for, uh, for Jessa. <laughs> Do you come across any particular challenges about having, was it eight different characters' point of view and first person point of view in there? Where, where I, obviously, it's a good way to advance the story from, from a different viewpoint, but was there anything when you were writing it where you're all of a sudden looking going, oh, this is, I'm juggling a lot. Oh, yeah, I agonized over whether or not I could do that, you know, and pull it off. Um, the thing about, because people are eliminated from a baking competition, I, you know, was able to kind of, like, condense those points of view. But, yeah, that was really hard for me. And I was like, how many can I get away with? Like, that was, as I was writing, I was like, ooh, I hope this works. I hope this is okay. It was scary. <laughs> I think it, you know, the different perspectives add depth. And you sort of, you see the story and the other characters from a different angle. And there's, you know, um, I think it adds a lot. The one thing that I made sure I never, oh, sorry. I just always make sure made sure that each new character moved was moved forward in time and that to me was very important because you never saw the same scene twice yeah. and i think that helped kind of mm -hmm. I don't it's know. a progression yeah and, and, yeah. Yeah. I'm a, yeah did you have a question over there it was more of a fun one <laughs> if you had to take a character from your guys's books to a restaurant 
Where are you taking him? What restaurant? Well, this is, uh, I would take my main character, Ty Klein, because he tells a lot of dad jokes. So do I. <laughs> We'd probably go to, to a burger <laughs> I would definitely take my favorite character in this book. His name is Prajumna. And he's just very fun. He's like, had a tech startup that was kind of like a bad idea. He sold it for a ton of money anyway. And he doesn't really need money. And he's kind of just there to see what happens because he can be and he's into baking. But I think he would be really fun. And I would take him chase fancy for sure because he's into wine. Put your hand up if you're the cursor. Um, Jerry, a couple of years ago, you'd mentioned the possible movie deal. Yeah. Uh, so tell me how that's coming. It's, it's going nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> I have calls about potential movie deals. It's been, I tell my wife, you know, I'm always a bridesmaid, never a bride. <laughs> so it's been some interest. In, um, I mean, maybe one of these days. Yeah. But if the movie does happen, I'm going to make all of you extras. <laughs> your names, and we'll put you in all right. the TV. I'd like for you to think about writing a novel about the voice competition. Ah, I can't see all these characters. That's a good the one, judges too. thinking, oh, they sound like me when I was. Yeah. I could just see this whole circle that you're writing about yeah. cooking competition. Mm -hmm. Think about an opera competition. Yeah, I love it. That could be it's big in audio. Yeah. <laughs> 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 really huge egos. Yeah. 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 Let's see, Steve would like to know, this is for AG, um, the song that Maria sings, A Hymn for the World After, did you have a melody or tune in mind when you wrote the lyrics to it? That's a good question. I, there is a certain rhythm to it, but I needed to make the words work, and it's, it's really about what she's singing and saying. But I did, to answer the question, I did look up some songs that have the same sort of rhythm to it. Yeah. I can't Music consultant for you. I need a music consultant. <laughs> Not being an extra, you all forgot Okay, she's the sound editor. Another one, he, he, Steve asks a number of questions. One is um, Is there a linked universe from the looking glass in pandemic slash genome to quantum radio? So it's a good question, and there are some. So what we're going to see in quantum radio is, is will be the origin of some of the other things that are in previous series. Yeah. All right, I'll give him one more. Um, let's see. This is interesting. A lot of your books seem to have a religious undertone to them, though not explicitly stated. Is this intentional? I don't know if it's intentional. I mean, I was raised a Christian, a Southern Baptist, and, you know, I don't put religion overtly in the books because... You know, for obvious reasons, but I think that the morals and some of the ideas that I was raised with, you treat other people the way you want to be treated, um, are sort of embedded in the books. And so these are sort of the principles that the characters, their code. So I think it's not explicit, but it's certainly there if, if people want. Did you intend to write a sequel to Quantum Radio to use these characters in another book? I have. I've, I've worked on some story ideas. 
it's like a cake. I mean, you never know if it's going to rise. So I'm, I'm working on some things, and maybe it'll happen. Ready? That's it. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Uh, for Jerry again. So there, throughout your books, there's a lot of common themes, right? And like uh, entrepreneurship is obviously is really obvious given your background, or whether it's like a setting or or mention of something in like the Mediterranean. But like on the science aspect in particular, there's a lot of common themes around whether it's like quantum mechanics or like you know um, like biology type topics. So on the science in particular, like are those areas that you have a history with, or are they just areas of interest that you've gotten really deep and decided to kind of weave through a lot of your books? It's a good question. It's a bit of both. So when I started out, I mean, I in college, I was a business major, so I wasn't a science major, but I did, you know, I took AP classes and at college. I didn't have to take any science, but I'm a huge geek. So I'm you know, <laughs> clearly really interested in science. And I started a tech company. I was a, a software engineer, but the books are really about the thing that has really fascinated me at the time. And so when I wrote Atlantis, The Last Gene, it was really about human origins and genetics and this, this sort of idea that, you know, there are seven, almost eight billion of us. And, you know, we know that our species genetically um, is about 200,000 years old. But if you go back 50,000 years, well, there's, there's several other hominids that are very like us in terms of their you know their genome and what they can do and you fast forward you know 25,000 years and there's none of them and there's so many of us and what makes us so different and so I, I think the big theme is these scientific questions and like you know these big scientific mysteries that, that fascinate me but you know college I worked in clinical research which is a big part of the Atlantis gene and um and obviously I've worked extensively in software, which plays into the book, but I don't know, it's, it's tough to write a book, or at least for me, I haven't figured out a way to write a book about software that's like really compelling. <laughs> um, you know, it's like no one's like chasing someone down for your code, like you your computer take it. So, and then the book's over. So, we'll only ever got the page five. a terrific hacking mystery. It could be, yeah. I, I haven't figured out how to do it. Could be, right? Yeah. And I mean, Cy, uh, Ty in quantum radio is, is a software engineer and a quantum physicist, but it's like his research that really gets into trouble. But um, to answer your question, yeah, it's, it's a mix of things that that I know a little, I know enough about to to be able to dig a little deeper and and try to figure out. But, but really, things that that interest me and and that I think readers might want to read about. Anyone else? Thank you for the question. So I do have one final question for you because I've read an advanced reading copy and they are not always complete. Are there any recipes in the Golden Spoon? Too cozy, I think. Or <laughs> <laughs> too dangerous. That's what I'm trying <laughs> it's really true. Often I come down here and I'm amazed when I see the finished book because I get one, you know, put out by the publisher way early in the process yeah, before it's doesn't necessarily either. have yeah. the same cover or something could have changed and occasionally that's really embarrassing because you know i read it differently and then uh -huh. it got edited and it got changed whatever anyway um so no recipes no, what, because the cookbooks are so dangerous the publisher yeah. didn't no. want to put the recipes no. in there 
I still, I still have trouble imagining if you should add a can of peas that anybody really would do that. I know it's just like really, but it did happen anyway. Um, thank you all very much for coming this evening. Let's give our authors a round of applause. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.